Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Back when I first started out in ministry, back in... 2001, 2002, sometime around there. I was a, I was actually a youth pastor for a, for a little while, and uh, I was down at First Baptist Church down in the big city of Tallapoosa. If you've never been to Tallapoosa, it's a happening place on New Year's Eve. They drop the possum on New Year's Eve instead of dropping a ball. Um, and so, uh, so Tallapoosa is, uh, it is, it is quite a place. I will tell you that. Um, I don't know what the deal was, and, and Jacob, I don't know if this is still the case. I don't think it is, but back when, back when I was first cutting my teeth in, in youth ministry, the, you had to do gross games to, to kind of capture, capture their attention. And I've seen a lot of gross games in, over the years, and I had books that were filled with them because back in those days, you actually had to have a book to use. You couldn't just go get on the Internet. We had, we had AOL in the church office, and you had to, wait, you had to sign up for a time to go dial up to, the, uh, to, get on the, to get on the Internet to check your email. Uh, and so I remember running across a game in, in these books, and it sounded like a lot of fun. A game. It really wasn't a game. It was more of a let's try to embarrass a kid so they will come back and bring friends type of experience. And so the object of the game, much like what we did here today, was to recruit a brave volunteer and you had to get this volunteer to eat a package of Kool-Aid. Now, there is something inside the brain of a teenager that said Kool-Aid is sweet. Therefore, the pouch that contains the Kool-Aid ought to be just like eating all of that sweetness in a highly concentrated form. So it, I don't know if y'all remember the, the, what are those called, the candy where you use Fun dips, like, like that, like the kind, you stick the candy thing down there and get the powder out and eat the sugary powder. And so they thought that that's what Kool-Aid was, was like. It's, it's got to be just like candy. And so I went and snagged myself a pack of cherry Kool-Aid, and, and I got a volunteer, and I told him that he got to eat the dry package of Kool-Aid. And, man, he was excited about it. So he ripped open the package of Kool-Aid, he opened it up, and dumped the whole package in his mouth at one time. And in a moment, his face wrenched into this terrible shape. And every salivary gland in his mouth emptied itself in an instant to try to deal with the horror that he had just put into his mouth. And what could only be described as something that looked like blood began to come out of the corners of his mouth. I watched in horror at what had just unfolded. So he grabbed his mouth, he ran outside, and he threw up everything in his stomach from the day. He came back in the room. Nobody said a word at this point, like, like what, what did we just witness? And, and again, back in the day, if you got a kid to throw up, that was bonus points for, uh, in youth ministry language. Came back into the room, his face was stained bright red with all of the Kool-Aid that had poured out of his mouth, and he realized something very important about Kool-Aid straight from the pack that night. It was missing a pretty important ingredient. Not just the water, it was missing the sugar. And so dry Kool-Aid is a super concentrated mixture of food coloring 
and what little bit of ingredients are in the pack that make it taste like whatever false flavor it's supposed to be. And in its highly concentrated form, it isn't anything remotely close to tasting good. Thankfully, the kid was a good sport. So was his mama. And we both learned something that day. I learned that making kids throw up in my youth group was not an admirable goal. And he learned that dry Kool-Aid is the next best thing to the uh, Ipecac syrup that they use in the ER to, to purge. Um, I think we all recognize this about life, though. Missing ingredients can either make or break just about any meal or project. And one of the things we recognize about our Christian life is that this is, this is true. You can have all the stuff, you can go to church, you can read your Bible, know all the facts, win Bible trivia every time, you can write your check, study your Sunday school lessons, sing in the choir, watch the babies in the nursery, and all those things, they're certainly good. But you can do all of the stuff of the faith and still be missing the main ingredients. Demographers tell us some very interesting things about religion in our nation. Just before the pandemic, the Pew Research Forum said that 43% of Americans identify as Protestants. If you add Catholics to the number, that raises the total number of our population. 63% of the people in our nation identify as Christian. Think about that. 63%. Six out of ten people identify as Christian. Now, you would think that such a huge majority of quote-unquote Christians would have a, a major impact on the culture. But I think it's safe to say that the opposite often seems true. For all intents and purposes, it almost seems that we're, we're losing influence in our culture. I've said from the pulpit many times, we here in Chattanooga Valley live in the shadow of the most church city in America, but the truth is you really you wouldn't know it. So what's going on? How can such a Christian population seem, well, seem so unchristian? It would seem that we must be missing something. This morning, as we continue in the book of Acts, we're introduced to another character. He's got a lot of the right ingredients, but it would seem that he's missing the main one. Hopefully this story this morning will help us to evaluate the ingredients in our own Christian faith and come to some reasonable conclusions for what we ought to do. So if you've got your Bibles open to the book of Acts, the 18th chapter, Acts chapter 18, this morning I'm going to be looking at verses 18 through 28, and we'll get into chapter 19 some as well, but we're going to start with Acts chapter 18 beginning in verse 18. I would ask you to stand as I read these words here. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Centre, he, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had launched, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. 
And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he told accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for Apollos and for your work in his life. I thank you for filling in the blanks in his Christian faith through the instruction of Priscilla and Aquila. I pray, God, that we might recognize any vacancies in our own walk as well today. Uh, bless us now as we consider these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So now Paul has been on one mission trip. He just finished a second mission trip. We read and he starts his third mission trip here in the book of Acts. We're told that Paul left Corinth after about 18 months. Except this time he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. He had made friends with them and they became very important to his ministry there in, in Corinth. But this is where, again, the maps in the back of your Bible come in really handy. They kind of, if you're a visual learner, just seeing those maps and being able to kind of follow the Apostle Paul along on these journeys is very helpful. Um, Paul spent a very brief amount of time in the city of Ephesus. He decided that in Ephesus, though, it was time to leave behind Priscilla and Aquila. And so he traveled back to Antioch, to the home base. He would soon return to Ephesus, but this time in that town, the work that he was doing would be overseen by his fellow tent makers. Priscilla and Aquila were left there to look after the work. They are faithful servants. Undoubtedly, the church in Ephesus was making great strides under their wise, spirit-filled guidance. So as the church is growing in Ephesus, a teacher by the name of Apollos shows up. And here's the thing. Apollos had all the right stuff in place. Almost. Here's what we know about Apollos. He had the right pedigree. He was Jewish. And he didn't have to deal with all that Gentile stuff. As a Jewish man, he could walk into a Gentile audience and they would receive him. He could walk into a synagogue and they would receive him. Anybody was willing to accept Apollos, the Jew. However, he didn't have to deal with, the, he wasn't a Gentile trying to win a Jewish audience. Apollos could have walked into any synagogue and gained that audience from those who were listening. We also know he was brilliant. He was a brilliant man. He was from, he was from Alexandria. You say, well, what, why does that make him brilliant? Well, saying that someone was from Alexandria was, was the ancient equivalent of saying that somebody graduated from Harvard or, or Yale. And I'm not talking about their politics, I'm talking about their intellect. Alexandria was the, the Ivy League of the ancient world. It had the, the greatest library in the ancient world. If you've ever ridden the spaceship Earth at Epcot, the, the big dome at Epcot, the, the thing that gets you in and kind of takes you up through world history, there's a stage in that ride where you start to smell things burning. And that's not just an old ride and the grease getting too hot. There's a, they've released scents into the atmosphere. They're taking you through the the fall of the Roman Empire and the burning down of the, the library at Alexandria. And so that, that gives you context for where he was from. We're told he was a very powerful speaker. Luke says that he was, he was eloquent. Eloquent. What does that mean? 
It means as he spoke as somebody who was pretty smart, right? He wasn't just some hayseed preacher. He, he knew his stuff. He, he, he knew the, the philosophy. He knew the, the way to communicate. He knew rhetoric and those sort of things. If you remember how the Athenians called Paul a babbler, they would say the same thing about Apollos. He was a, he was a powerful speaker. Luke says that he, he spoke with great fervor. It said he was fervent in spirit. It doesn't mean that he had received the Holy Spirit. It simply speaks to the zeal with which he spoke. You like listen to people who are fervent in spirit, right? Especially on daylight savings time. You say, man, I wish he was more fervent in spirit. <laughs> so it means that he wasn't just a boring lecturer. He was a compelling, passionate speaker. He captivated people's attention. They were keyed in on what he was saying. And Apollos even knew information about Jesus. He was likely telling people that Jesus was the Messiah. But Luke is very clear to point out a deficiency with this guy named Apollos. He says he only knew the baptism of John. Now, what does that mean? What it seems to suggest is that Apollos didn't have the full picture of Jesus. He, his understanding likely came up short in terms of Jesus' death and resurrection. Apollos likely had no idea about Pentecost and the, the, in, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know those things. And so his information came up short. Apollos had a lot of the right stuff, but he came up short in that which truly mattered. Listen to this. This is important. Facts about Jesus do not necessarily equate to faith in Jesus. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can know a lot about Jesus. You can know a lot about spiritual things. But possessing that knowledge does not automatically guarantee you access to the kingdom of God. Now, as, a, as just an aside, I love how Priscilla and Aquila deal with this problem. You know, in today's world, if the preacher was standing up in the congregation and he began to speak and it was something that was slightly off, how would we handle that? Well, the outrage mob would come. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear? Let me get on social media and tell everybody what he said and let's all join in the outrage together. Let's get angry. It's not what Priscilla and Aquila do. Apollos was a little off in his presentation. There was something that was not quite right. What did Priscilla and Aquila do? They gently pull him aside. They don't publicly stand up and say, Apollos, you heretic, get your act together! I had to do that because y'all are sleepy. I felt the need to just... <laughs> they didn't do that. Instead, they, they pull him to the side and they fill in the blanks. They give him all the things that he was missing. I have to say, what a delight this couple is. I would love to sit down and have coffee with Priscilla and Aquila because they just seem like such a delightful couple in ministry. They weren't overtaken by the outrage that Apollos had an incomplete gospel. They didn't start a campaign to get him removed from ministry. Instead, they quietly pulled him aside and they helped him. And the way they helped him, guess what? Helped the church. At the same time, Apollos must have had great humility to, for this great orator, this great speaker, this man who spoke with such zeal and eloquence to be able to be set down by these humble tent makers, to have his theology corrected, to have his understanding of Jesus corrected. And it's admirable from both of them. We need more of this character and demeanor in the church today, not the nitpicky nag, but the, but the serving saint. The person who's willing to receive, 
those corrections as well as the gentle spirit in which they are offered. So, what happens? We see that through this couple, through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila, a filling in the blanks of Apollos' understanding of the gospel, he receives the full picture. And I believe in their home, under their instruction, I believe Apollos became a true Christian. Not just someone who had facts about Jesus, not just someone who had charisma in his presentation, but I believe that as a result of their instruction, Apollos not only had facts about Jesus, he not only had powerful presentation about Jesus, he also had saving faith in Jesus as a result of the instruction of Priscilla and Aquila. And his facts about Jesus became true saving faith. So what happens? He's armed with the gospel now. He's got the Holy Spirit now. And then Apollos is unleashed into the church at Corinth to help that church understand the full picture of Jesus. And God bless them. We know Corinth needs all the help they can get. He was such a compelling speaker that actually the Corinthians were told over in Paul's letters that, that it was actually, they tried to make it a popularity contest between Apollos and Paul. Well, he preaches better. Well, Paul knows more. I mean, it was a, it was a popularity contest. So Luke takes us on this little detour, introduces us to this man named Apollos, and while he was doing that, Paul was over here beginning his third missionary journey. We see that happening there as we get into Acts chapter 19. And what happens in Acts chapter 19, Paul, be, Paul meets with this group of disciples who were very similar to Apollos. Over in Acts chapter 19, let's look at verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul, you know, that, that's, a, that's a trigger phrase right there. What? You hadn't heard the Holy Spirit? And he says, oh, in what baptism were you baptized? And they said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. That's what, exactly what Apollos had experienced. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 of them. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Here's 12 guys. They had all the right stuff. Almost. Almost. We're even, they're even described as, as disciples, which is an interesting word, but they still lacked some main ingredients. They still lacked the most important things. This group was very similar to Apollos. They had the right information, but they were missing key ingredients. And just like Apollos, they had only tasted of John's baptism. It's important for us. What's the difference? You hear the New Testament talk about this some, but the difference between John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus. What, what's the difference there? You see, John was baptized, and it represented a type of spiritual renewal, a repentance from sin. And so if you were a Jew and you felt sorrow for your sin, you might go see John, the baptizer, and you might be washed, because in the washing there was that symbolic cleansing of, of sin. This is why we sometimes in the church today get into this idea where we have to be baptized in order to be a Christian, and that's not the, that's not the case. We're not, we, don't, we don't earn salvation by taking a public bath. Instead, that public bath that we call baptism is a response to something that's already happened. Because we are Christians, we're delighted to be obedient to Jesus and follow through with baptism. 
So there is a difference between John's baptism and and Christian baptism. In the physical act of baptism as Christians, we are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we as Baptists think that immersion is so important. It's hard to bury somebody by sprinkling water over their head, right? It's a symbol. It's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is going into the water. Under the water represents the death and burial. Coming up out of the water represents the resurrection. It is an identification for us as Christians. When we're encountering these people here, we're actually dealing with people who who understand a lot of Jesus' teaching. But really, they don't seem to understand his death and resurrection. Because if they understood Jesus' death and resurrection, what would they want to do? Identify with it, right? I mean, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, you want to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the, that's the nature of the gospel. We die to ourselves. We, we live to walk in newness of life. That picture of baptism is a, is a physical picture of what we have experienced. We want to identify with Jesus in that regard. And so for both Paul or both Apollos and these men that Paul encountered in Ephesus, what do they do when they are corrected? They have the opportunity to hear the whole truth. They believe the gospel. They're baptized. And now what happens? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And their fruit reflected this newfound faith. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. The Holy Spirit's presence in their life confirmed the legitimacy of their faith. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Pay attention. This is so important for us today because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our Christian faith. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our Christian faith. And I'm going to say something that may sound controversial, but I assure you it's biblical. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have Jesus. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, him being Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I would dare say that part of the problem with the church in America today is this. We have a bunch of folks who know facts about Jesus, but they don't have saving faith in Jesus. And as a result, what are they missing? The Holy Spirit. And a church full of people who don't possess the Holy Spirit It's really not good for much of anything. And if they don't have the Holy Spirit, then they don't have that guarantee that the Bible speaks of. All of this points to this important reality. There are three kinds of people in our church. There are three kinds of people in every church. Don't you love when we just lump everybody into this category? I mean, it's so, it's so uncouth in today's culture because everybody's got to be their own thing. Everybody's got to identify how they want to identify. No, there's really just three types of people. Okay? In this conversation, there are three types of people. The first group of people in our church are these people, committed Christians. Committed Christians. And those of you who are committed Christians are thinking, well, I'm glad he mentioned us first, so we're off the hook, right? 
Uh, committed Christians. What do I mean by committed Christians? These are people who aren't perfect. This is not a, an expectation of perfection, but they are people who understand the importance of walking in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. You got up out of bed this morning, you lost an hour of sleep, and you said, but this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You filled your tank up with $4 a gallon gas, and you rejoiced in your suffering and trials because you were working every day to walk in the Spirit. And everybody just said, well, he just excluded all of us, Right? You're trying. You're, you're walking in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. You're seeing victory over sin. You're seeing victory over doubt and unbelief. You see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We receive the Spirit at our conversion, but there is still a need for us to keep in step with the Spirit. we got to walk daily with Him right? We don't, get to, uh, we don't get to be saved, receive the Spirit, and then, then wander off. We've got to stay in step with Him. It's a challenge for us not just to have the Spirit, but to heed the Spirit. As Jesus' followers, we're not simply to carry around the Spirit as some sort of insurance policy, but daily submit ourselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's easy. We all have experienced times where we didn't submit ourselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There was something you knew you were supposed to do, and you just said, you know what, I just I can't do it. And you know the consequences of not surrendering yourself to the Spirit of God. And so daily we have to make that decision to walk in step with the Spirit. There's another group of people in our church. Those people are, are non-Christians. Non-Christians. And, and in this culture, in this society, in the shadow of the most church city in America, there are probably a lot of people in our churches today who are non-Christians who have a lot of religious facts. Maybe they went to vacation Bible school as a child. Maybe they were even baptized as a child. You may know lots about Jesus. You may know the Ten Commandments. You may have had a whole lot of spiritual experiences. However, if you are honest today, you recognize that you neither live by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit. Apollos and the 12 men Paul encountered in Ephesus had most of the right stuff, but they lacked the most important thing. It wasn't like they were almost, like they were partially saved. You don't get partially saved. You don't get partially regenerated, partially born again. It's all or nothing. But these people that we encounter in Acts chapter 18 and 19 had lots of things, but they lacked the main thing. And as a result, they did not possess the Holy Spirit as a guarantee because they did not know the whole gospel. Please listen to me. Do not be like these people who almost had it all. Do not be the person who attends church their whole life. They spend time with the Savior's people, but they miss the Savior. Do not be the person who spends time in the Word of the Lord to come up short and miss Jesus. Here's the question. Do you see the work of the Spirit in your life? You see it? Again, if not... There's really only one of two options. You're a non-Christian. You need to repent from sin and trust Jesus. Or, if you know about Jesus, 
You know not just who he is. You also know that he's the all-sufficient Savior who can meet your greatest need. You understand Jesus is the one who can bridge the divide between your sin and the holiness of God. That's what you need to do if you're not a Christian today. Or maybe you're in this third group. I call this third group quenched Christians. Quenched Christians. It may seem like a strange title. But Paul warned the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, you should not quench the Spirit. I found that, that when the Bible gives us instructions and prohibitions, that that means that it is possible to violate those prohibitions, right? I mean, for example, if you get a hot cup of coffee from a restaurant in the drive-thru, the cup says on it every single time, what? Caution, contents are hot, Right? I remember McDonald's got sued or something because their coffee was too hot because somebody spilled it on themselves. Like, you got coffee. What did you expect? Well, if it says caution, the contents are hot, that is warning you that it is possible for you to do what? Burn yourself. There is a consequence. It is possible to, to do that which you're being instructed not to do. So when the Bible says, do not quench the Spirit, this must mean that it is possible for us to do what? To do exactly that, to quench the Spirit. So what does that even mean? Quenching the Spirit suggests that at one point you were sensitive to the Spirit. But over the course of time, you have allowed other things to take hold in your life that has caused you to quench the Spirit. Now, again, there are certain things we like to quench. If there's a wildfire, we like the rain to quench the wildfire. If you are thirsty, you'd like a glass of water to quench your thirst. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit of God, you do not want to quench that. So if you look to your life today and you say, man, there was a time where I could see God's work in my life. I could see the hand of God moving. I could feel the Spirit working within me. I felt myself walking in spiritual victory. I felt myself having victory over sin, victory over disbelief. I remember a time where it felt like that. But today it just seems to be coming up short. It just seems to be missing. Well, guess what? doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It does mean that you're walking in a situation where the Spirit is quenched. Jesus warned the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He says, remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen. So there was a time where you were here, but it's some, something has happened and you have fallen and you're not there anymore. He says to repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus looks at the church at Ephesus here and he says, you need to get back to where you were. You need to go back to that place to where, where you, you had your first love. You need to get, re restore that place. Go back to there because you've let other things get in the way. You're not there anymore. You need to repent because you have fallen. And Jesus says, I'm going to judge you if you don't. He says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to come remove your lampstand, take your light away unless you repent. You know, the, I've seen... I think, Jacob, you even tagged me in this uh, this weekend that uh, Baptists are exempt from daylight savings time. And the reason is, is because daylight savings time was saved last year, and we believe that once saved, always saved. Um, and I believe that. I believe the Bible's very clear that, 
that when we are truly, truly in Christ, you cannot not be in Christ, right? When you are truly in Christ, you cannot not be in Christ. It's like, it's like if, if I have a child, that child is mine. I mean, I could go through the legal ramifications, sign away my parental rights and all those things, but, but I can't change his DNA. That's my child. I can't undo that. I can't fix that. Even if I die, it's still my son. I can't undo that. And if I'm adopted into the family of God, if I'm truly adopted, I'm truly a child of God, I'm truly brought into this family, I cannot not be in the family. There are plenty of people who seem to drift away. We see that. We experience that. We may even know people who, man, they used to be in the church, and now if you talk to them about spiritual things, they, won't, they don't want anything to do with it. You say, well, did they, did they lose their salvation? You know, did they fall away? And the reality is this, is that they were never truly in the family to begin with. Because you can't become a child and then have that position revoked. Here's what would have happened to Apollos if Priscilla and Aquila had not taken the time to invest in Apollos and fill in the blanks of his faith and give him the full picture of who Jesus was. Guess what would have happened to Apollos? He would have stopped being the man that he was because he was not working in, under the control of the Spirit. He was charismatic. He was eloquent. He, he spoke with zeal. But he didn't have the Spirit. It would have worn out very quickly. At the same time, we all know that it's possible, perhaps over the course of time, for our eyes to drift and our zeal to wane. Why is that? Maybe it's because we've allowed sin to take a foothold in our lives. Maybe it's because we've seen unbelief and doubt creep into our lives. Y'all are Christian. Anybody ever had doubts before, struggled with doubts? I have. Man, I'd like to think that it's been 100% belief all the time, but there have been times, many times I've wrestled with doubt. And that's not a, that's not a time of, of victory, is it? When you wake up and you're wrestling with, with doubts, it's hard to even show up at church when those doubts are real. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it does mean there's, there's struggle, there are points of struggle. Maybe you, you recognize that the Spirit has had a place in your life, but for a host of reasons and excuses that zeal has simply evaporated. You allowed other things to take charge in your life. You need to do what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. Repent. Turn from those things and turn to Jesus. You need to do what Paul told the church at Colossae in Colossae chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. Daily walking with Jesus. If you're not seeing the evidence of the Spirit in our lives made manifest through His power, through His joy, through His grace, even through His restraint, then it may be evident that we've allowed some other things into our life that have quenched the Spirit. How many of us, if we're just honest today, we're walking around with quenched spirits? Like the spiritual equivalent of a drowned rat. That's an old figure of speech, right? You look like a drowned rat. No power, no peace, no hope. You had it, 
But for whatever reason, it's diminished. Repent. Find your first love again. Like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, he said, don't get drunk with wine for this debauchery. He says, but instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's no denying the power and the significance of a Spirit-filled church and a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus. Who knows what came of Apollos? Well, we don't. He's not mentioned much more once we get out of Acts chapter 18 and 19 and once Paul deals with him in 1 Corinthians. We know he went to Corinth. He became a great ambassador for the kingdom of God. Luther, the reformer, we sang one of his hymns today. Luther believed that he would go on to be the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, so some people would think Paul wrote Hebrews. A lot of people would think Apollos wrote Hebrews because of all those Old Testament analogies that it makes. But the point, though, is that, is that God used him, not because he was eloquent or filled with the Spirit or because he knew his stuff. God used him because he was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit and was ready to be put to work with it. Who knows what became of those Ephesian disciples that Paul mentioned there in Acts chapter 19. Maybe they went on to become leaders at the church at Ephesus. We don't know, but there's no doubt that God put them to work. Why? Because they were filled with the Spirit. God did a work in their life. God wasn't going to let that go to waste. He put them to work. We need to be a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. As you look at your life today, what are those things that you've allowed to quench the Spirit in your life? Or, or maybe as you're daily learning to love Jesus more, are there opportunities and pitfalls that you can anticipate to watch out against? Because that's the truth as well, that, that even as I try to walk in the Spirit, I know that there's, there's places to stumble coming just up ahead. I know there's opportunities for failure right around the bend, and so right now I want to fortify this, this faith so that when I reach those places, I can stand, I can, I can hold fast. Or maybe you're here today. And as I've talked this morning, you're confronting with the very real fact and the very real possibility that there is no indication of the Spirit of God at work in your life at all. You need to be real honest right now. Real honest. Looking at your life, the, the sum total of your work, the sum total of your relationships, the sum total of your conversations, you see no indication of the Holy Spirit at work. No fruit, no love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no gentleness, no faithfulness, no self-control. Just honest, you realize those things are missing. What do you do? I would implore you today to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus. Don't be the person who goes to church. Don't be the person who reads their Bible don't be the person who writes a tithe check. Don't be the person who, who serves in these places and miss Jesus. Today, set your sin at the foot of the cross. Give everything to Jesus. And be filled with the Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity with which you speak about these matters. Thank you, Father, for the precious gift of the Holy Spirit that serves as a, as a guarantee of our faith in Jesus. We don't have the Spirit. We don't have Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are those among us who are faithfully walking in the Spirit today, I pray you would guard us against failure tomorrow. 
if there are those among us who are not Christians today, that they would honestly evaluate their lives right now in this moment and, and your spirit would begin to work in them and draw them to you, that you would speak their name and help them to see that deficiency and that today they would trust in Jesus. Or maybe there's some of us today that we're just honest. It's been a tough two years. And we have struggled with discouragement and doubt, even as we look at our world events today. Just wrestling with doubt. God, that today we would hold fast to the Spirit. That we would not allow these things to take hold in our lives and that we would walk faithfully daily in the Spirit of God. Father, I thank you for your word and for how you speak and how you work and how you move. I pray now that you would move in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.